Welcome to the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders Association podcast. I'm Jerry Houston, co-president of the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders Association, or WAFA for short. We're a Wharton Alumni Club with the mission to increase the number of Wharton women founders and the number of Wharton women who get funded. We host frequent meetups in the Bay Area and now in New York to provide support to female founders. To connect with us and see what we're planning next, visit hellowafa.org. That's hello, W-A-F-F-A.org. This podcast is a recording of a recent fireside chat with Finn Barnes, partner at First Round Capital. Finn explains why First Round focuses on seed investments, what they look for, and how they structure their deals. He also explains the concept of diversity debt and why it's important to focus on building a diverse team from the very beginning, even if, the, even if that means it takes longer. First Round was founded by Wharton alum Josh Koppelman and has a female investing partner. There's lots of great insights from Finn in this talk and stay for the answer to the audience question at the end about why we should invest in women. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so next, without further ado, um, I'm going to 
uh, deeply curious, not just about their industry or the, the customer that they're serving, but also about themselves and their own leadership and how they think about personal growth and the startup as a vehicle uh, for that growth over time and recognizing that it's very unlikely that any part, any founder that we partner with is gonna retire with that email address you know, in that company. It's likely they're gonna have another job, another job, and so this is just one stop along their career and the, the people who have that perspective and sort of think about how to um, do their best in that moment to have their steepest growth um, and learning curve within that company to be the best leader they can be um, those are the those are the founders that are most enjoyable to work with but also that tend to be the most successful okay so, so let's say I'm a founder of a consumer company like uh, a startup like when should I come to you like like what are the things that I should have solved or you know done before especially for not, not for advice but for investment yeah so really, I mean, the, the real answer is it depends. Um, we, you know, people talk about seed stage versus pre-seed or incubation or you know, seed extensions, A, it's all kind of mixing into this early stage world. And I think for me, startups really just have four stages. Like all these names are investor names trying to have like a swim lane and a niche and to know when founders should talk to you. But I think companies really have four stages. There's, there's inspiration, which is, I've decided I'm going to start a consumer company and it's going to help people share photos or whatever. Um, then there's aspiration, which is you dive in and start doing a bunch of work on the market, you meet customers, you maybe build some paper prototypes, and you start to understand what your North Star is. And you don't know how you're going to get there. You're not exactly clear on you know, who you need to hire next or what the product needs to look like, but you have a very clear aspiration for what you want that company to look like if you're successful. Um, and you're doing things day to day that are, you're doing them all for the first time and, um, and learning and probably dropping more things, stop, stopping doing more things than you keep doing. Um, at some point you sort of shift into what I call the operation phase, which is now you're doing more and more things on a repeated basis. You're trying to marginally improve them every time you do it, become more efficient, build processes, you're delegating more things, um, and you're really operating the business. And that's where you really find product market fit and you get that engine spinning. And then after that, you're just scaling. And, and all the different stages of scale, they're, they're different, but they're not that different. And sort of I think that the, um, and so for us, where, where we like to invest <coughs> is in the aspiration and operation phase of, of your business. I think the journey of discovery at the very beginning when it's all inspiration, we're not very good at. And, and in fact, investors around the table at that stage feels a little strange to me because if investors knew what to do there, they should go do it instead of telling you what to do. Um, the, and then at the aspiration and, and operation phase is where I think you can find that access to resources from a, and so you need cash to, to, to invest in the company itself. Access to resources can be a constraint. And then also access to best practices and the day-to-day the -day tactical decisions that you're making as a founder and then ultimately the strategic decisions you make kind of on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis really matter and affect the trajectory of your business. Um, into operation and efficiency, and then when we get to scale, we're, um, we become passive, and, and at that point, I think most investors are primarily financial investors, and that's not something that we, we do very well. Predicting large outcomes is not something that we're very good at. So, um, just to summarize, or it's at the point when you have a clear problem, that you know what you're so the problem that you're going to go after, is that the right time? Yeah, so I think on the early end, it, when yeah. you're when you have very clear problem definition, you have a sense of uh, 
you, you have gone deep with your customers, you understand who your target market is, you can articulate their needs and wants, and, and um, you have a really uh, broad understanding of the market itself. Um, you probably have some ability to build that product and get some things out in the market, and build some tests and understand what you'd be testing for, the hypothesis that you're, that you're testing, what would define success or failure, et cetera. Um, that would be on the early end. And then on the late end, it's I have a product, it's in market, we have small amounts of revenue, we think that we have the beginnings of, of product or signs of product market fit, um, but it's not obvious that this thing is, is going to take off, and that would sort of be the, the later end. Um, at the point where it's wash, rinse, repeat, and you're, you're just ready to grow, like you're probably too late for, for us, where financially we might want to invest because it's de-risked in many ways, but the product that we've built and the expertise of our partnership are not going to be right for, for you as a founder. Okay, and so on the back side, like what kind of math do you do in your head to make sure that this company that you're going to invest in like, is a good fit for first round? No math. No math. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, yeah, we joke that we, we used to joke that we only use Excel for um, for expenses, but now we use Expensify, so we can't, <laughs> we can't use that joke anymore. But there's really not. I, I mean, I think that um, when we look at financial models or or when we think about these things, the the first thing is, for those of you that are entrepreneurs, like every number in your model today is wrong. It just is. It's high or low, and we don't know which one is which. <coughs> I think when we look at models, what we tend to do is look for uh, how did you come up with the number? What are the assumptions that you made? Um, you know, models that show revenue growing 25% a quarter every quarter forever um, show <laughs> a different level of thought than models that have different inflection points and can describe why that is and where those inflection points are preceded by inflections in spending on marketing and so forth. And so I think when we look at numbers or math, um, what we're really looking for is the thought behind the math from the operating model perspective. Um, from a business model perspective, for first round, we certainly have have a model, and, and the model is pretty simple. We have we have a two hundred twenty million dollar fund. Uh, we when we make our initial investment, we like to own 18 percent of the company or so. When you raise your next round of capital, we will take our full pro rata and, and maintain our ownership at fifteen or eighteen percent. And our belief is, from that point until exit, there's probably another thirty percent dilution in there. And so our goal is to own more than ten percent of the company at exit. And if you sell for $2 billion, you return our fund, and everybody should be happy. And that's sort of the math that we do. Okay. That makes sense. Um, <coughs> so let's switch over to like women. So um, like we all have, like studies show like we all have crisis, and, and both women and men. Like, uh, But what do you guys do, or what do you do to make sure that the bias is not part of your decision making? So we, we try to, so unconscious bias obviously is most dangerous. Yeah. Um, and we try to be reflective about that uh, as a partnership. Um, we, our decision-making process is a team-based process. So there's, there's four of us that make investments. There's five of us that make the investment decisions. So we have an operating partner, um, Brett, who also uh, has an influence on the investment decision. Um, but the, the four of us who lead investments, uh, we try to, um, be very careful about kind of the way we're thinking about businesses. We try to look at the way a decision was made around one company and see if it's really different than the way we're framing or thinking about a decision about another company and look at is that based on founder differences, um, et cetera. I think uh, we, also, we also look at the numbers and we don't think that we can have quotas in terms of you know, this year, I think, I think over the last three years, 20 something percent of our 22, um, maybe 23, 
of the companies that we invested in have a female founder, um, which is not good, but it's way better than many in the industry. So we're kind of torn on that number. Um, and I think we're not comfortable saying that, you know, so next year we will have 30% or 50%. Um, but I think we, we do look at the numbers. And, and as we see differences in not just the end investment, but the numbers of founders that people are taking initial meetings with and the, um, even the referral sources. And, and so we, we look deeply at that. And what we've come to around bias is uh, our hope is by talking about the way we're making decisions and questioning each other as a team and being very open to questioning, are you saying that because, and you know, this is, this is, or are you, when we looked at a company that I think is similar with a male founder, you said this, this is a female founder and now you're saying this other thing which is negative or I think there's a stereotype there or something. We have those conversations in the partnership. Um, and, and I've seen those things move conversations and people be very reflective from a, from a bias perspective. Um, the other thing we do is in looking at the entire sort of funnel of sources of, of investment opportunities and, and really trying to understand where these things are coming from um, and, and trying to skew our network uh, so that we see more representation in our network with the belief that if we have a representative network we will then have representative referral sources, which will then have representative entrepreneurs, which would then have representative investments over a long period of time. Um, and when we hired Haley, so one partner is a female, Haley Barna, uh, we hired her, and very quickly, in looking at the, at the referral sources, there was a stark difference. So, so for me and for the other partners, 20% um, of our investments have been women. Um, of our referral sources, though, it's about 10%. And, you know, just, but for Haley, 50% of her investments were in female entrepreneurs, and 70% of her referral sources were women. And so we just saw this very stark contrast, and it was something that we hadn't thought of before, and, and, and then we started working very hard on how individually we could build those relationships for, for referrals and the belief that the Hamathli effect is real, and therefore female referrals would refer female founders at a higher rate, not exclusively. Um, and then we also made an effort to to establish um, not necessarily specific quotas, but targets for all of our individual network events. So um, we, in, on the events that we host, we try to make sure that we have 50% um, gender representation, and then we try to hit 20% underrepresented minority representation within, like we host about 90 dinners a year in our office for 12 to 16 people, and we try to make sure those are representative. And when we do events for our founders, we try to make sure that the founders that are coming together are, are representative, at least of the portfolio mix, to the extent we can't sort of over-service, but at least represent the portfolio mix. Um, and then when we do broader touches to the market, from everything from the people who are the authors of the review articles that we put out, which is our content marketing piece, through to um, the mentors we have in our mentor network of over 500 people, um, all the way down to our expert network, which is a tighter group of about 100 people that are much more involved. We see, um, we've worked very, very hard. It's not, we're not there yet. We work very, very hard to have representation amongst those people in the belief, again, that if our community is representative, then our investments would be representative. Or at least if they're not, then we really know it's a bias problem, not a, a connectivity or network problem. Okay. Uh, but it's a huge issue, and it's something that we don't like, mm -hmm. you know, as four white guys and a white woman sitting in a room making decisions, like we recognize like it's not, it's not ideal. Yeah, and so what advice do you have uh, for women when dealing with like your firm or any other firm? Yeah, so, so I think one thing 
one thing that is it like any founder should do this, but I think women in particular, um, if it doesn't feel right, if someone is not being respectful, like fuck them and move on. Like it doesn't, you don't need to tolerate anything because there's so much capital out there, particularly right now. And everyone's money ultimately is green. And so if you don't like the person, then you should not work with them. Like you, you this is someone, it's harder to get someone off your cap table than it is to get divorced. Like this is a long-term relationship, <laughs> your stuff, and like they're gonna have information about your company and you know your finances for a long, long, long time. And if it's not someone that you trust or someone that you think respects you for whatever reason, doesn't have to be because of your gender, but if it is, definitely walk away. But I think that's that's the first thing. There's lots and lots and lots of partners out there that can write checks and firms that provide services and so forth. And so you're not you're not stuck with the first person that sort of is interested. Um, that's one. And then two, I think it's fine to ask these questions. You know, we, we get asked these questions very rarely by entrepreneurs in terms of looking at our portfolio and understanding how we make decisions and pushing on the way we think about um, whether if gender is the issue you want to talk about, then you should bring it up. Like you need to be able to have these conversations. Um, also, I think you're going to see it reflected in the way that people encourage you to build out the rest of your cap table. And, and like my friends at Hashtag Angels, they've done a ton of work around cap table. Um, and that's something that we, we focus on and some investors care about, but many don't. And they just want more allocation in the round versus some diversity on your, on your cap table. And I think it's a short-sighted decision because that diversity on the cap table flows through to who your advisors will be, which flows through to who's going to help you hire that key executive, which flows through to who that executive will be, the DNA of your team, the diversity inside your company, um, and the value of that. And so I think, I think that asking all of these questions um, is something I would definitely do. Uh, and then, and then I think the last thing is, um, you know, there is there's lots of research about you know, there was this stuff about how VCs ask women negative questions versus they ask men positive questions, and I think we have seen uh, I've seen I've seen women in the pitches that I take make make sort of two categories of mistake. So one is the stereotypical mistake, which is to be uh, too I wouldn't call it honest, but too uh, grounded in your projections and you know, what you think is possible, right? And I've seen women make that mistake a lot. And, and it's probably more accurate, but the problem is the, the sort of the, the contextual setting that you're in, you're surrounded, or the, the meeting before and the meeting after is somebody basically inflating their numbers because they think that that's right. And I, neither, neither person is lying. It's just how willing are you to sort of talk about the dream with me scenario where your company could go versus how rational are you being about what's going to happen in the next three or six or nine months. And I would encourage you to always present the dream of me scenario about how big this business could be and why and why you believe it and why you're, you know, you have tremendous opportunity cost and, and you're dedicating five or ten years of your life to this thing. And like, why? Why is it worth it? And why is this the, the mission that you're on? Um, I think laying that out, uh, both because it's great just to say it and to make you feel good, but also because if it doesn't resonate with the person that's sitting with you, you shouldn't work with them. Like it's not, they need to understand your long-term vision. That's the most important thing. And they need to really believe in how big this can be. Um, and you need to test on how they think you'll get there. So I think I would definitely present the dreaming scenario. The other mistake um, that I've, I've seen women make is uh, because, and this is, this is getting to be less of, a, of an issue, but because of the lack of general um, representation in terms of mentorship, people to look at and say, oh, I want to be like this person. Um, women will then look to the other successful entrepreneurs that are highlighted 
And you know, part of being a great entrepreneur is not to be best in class or average, it's to be completely exceptional, like at the very far tail end of the distribution. And the only way you're gonna achieve that is by absolutely 100% being true to yourself and who you are and not trying to be someone else. And so, particularly someone who's a man, if you're a woman. Um, and, and I've seen people, uh, I mostly see this after we've partnered with someone and then they're operating the business, but getting advice from or sort of cribbing the approach from a management style perspective, a recruiting style perspective, running board meetings in a way that they think will be effective because an advisor or a mentor of theirs who's a man sort of suggested this. And it just doesn't fit, like it's not, it doesn't match their personality. And, and it would be the same if it was same gender giving bad advice, but I think, I think for women there's a particular trap there, which is here's some examples of success. They all happen to be very different than you from a gender perspective. You should do exactly what they're doing. Um, and I think you can actually lose yourself and a big piece of what, what will make you successful and will make you an outlier in trying to be like someone else. So those are the two traps that I see women fall into, more so than men who are overconfident and have lots of other traps, but, but those are two traps. So for, like, in, like, it seems like you have amazing numbers, or not amazing, I mean, good numbers. Uh, numbers that we're okay to talk about. Exactly, <laughs> but like the average for for the like VC money is around like 2%. Yeah, and like, like, why do you think this is? Like, is it because they're not adopting, like? Yeah, I think, I think it is a, I do think it's a network problem at a high level. I think, but I think that the way that plays out, or the, the psychology behind that, is because as investors we have no idea what we're doing, and so you're looking for signal in any little place you can find it. And the brain plays tricks on you. And if someone is, you know, familiar or something you like, or maybe because you know I've heard that VCs have big egos, like you see yourself in someone, and then you're like, oh, that'll be successful, and so then you invest, and it's looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, and so I'm comfortable, and so I invest, right? And so I think there's a tremendous amount of that. In addition to those people are often surrounded by other people who look like me, talk like me, act like me, telling me how great that person is. And so it's just easier, it's like, oh, well, all these other smart people told me it's a good idea, and that this person's amazing, and so I'm gonna back them, because it's easy, versus sort of having to think independently and, and come to your own conclusion about, you know, this person in this situation facing tremendous uncertainty, how will she make judgments and calls that will lead to maximizing enterprise value and building a durable company? And I think that's a much harder exercise, and so people have not done that, and you know, people have been very successful not doing that. So, so do you feel like the VC industry needs to change to, in that sense, like so. to be able to cater more towards women? Yeah, I think I think as you have increasing numbers of female entrepreneurs, as you have um, increasing numbers, obviously the the share of wallet hasn't really shifted that much, but I think increasing numbers of women uh, on the consumer side uh, building companies, I think, um, and and the consumer has always been there. But I think another shift is just increasing numbers of women in the workforce making decisions about all the SaaS companies that are doing so well. And so now you think about sort of who's gonna build a product that resonates, and you know, it's the classic, like, you know, the, the group of white dudes that built the hand dryer that didn't trigger when you had dark skin, like, that type of thing, that will propagate itself across the technology industry if we don't have women leading companies, uh, which will mean that there's a tremendous audience that's underserved by tech and 
will will fail to eat the world. Um, and and I think as investors, um, you'll miss out on a whole bunch of a whole category of tremendous returns um, in every single sector that you look at, because women are going to build amazing businesses. Like I, I would argue that over the next decade, like if you say people say there's there's sort of five or six companies that really really matter in a decade, the Airbnbs and the Ubers and and Slack and so forth, um, Facebook, whoever. And I would argue that in the next decade, probably uh, if there's five, three or more of them will be founded, run, and built by someone who's female, underrepresented minority, or both. And so if you don't talk to those people, you're gonna miss out on the head end, the power law return that every investor is building their career off the ability to fund. Why do you believe that? Because I think that the, the um, on the consumer side, certainly you're you're seeing when when women are leading companies targeting female audiences and and sort of man, you know broad audiences. There's a nuance to that that and and there's leadership there that's very different than either other people they're competing with or the legacy um, people. And so if you imagine that the way you're gonna the way you're, and in, in SaaS is the same, but the way you're gonna disrupt an industry is by thinking differently than the incumbents. You're probably not going to think differently if you grew up the same way, with the same experience, went to the same school, and have been treated the same way your whole life. It's just, or maybe you can, but it's just less likely. And so I think that there's a, um, as you look at who is the establishment, oftentimes the the people that sort of come up and and build the next great company are not the establishment. Uh, and so I think one way to shortcut that is potentially to focus on women and underrepresented minority founded companies who are focused on building products in different ways and building different cultures and recruiting different types of people and just thinking very differently about what it means to build a massive enterprise and how to do that. Yeah. So um, if we switch over, like, could you talk about like what does it really mean to know your customers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think for... Um, for consumer companies and for and more and more B2B companies are effectively consumer companies because everyone's just swiping a credit card. And, and so I think I think it really involves just spending a lot of time with the customer. So if you're if you're selling a, a tool to HR people, how many desk sides did you do? How many days did you spend sitting with someone who was doing that job over and over again and taking notes on their pain points? Um, the same for a consumer-facing app. How many people did you take the prototype and hand it to them and watch them do it? Did you use user testing and, and send out you know all these surveys and, and all these things? So I think there's a there's a question of how deep have you gone on the problem? Yeah. Um, and there's there's lots of ways that for free you can go incredibly deep into a problem and really get inside the head of the of the customer. Um, and I think what you're looking for there, or what I look for as an investor, is is the first layer. Like a good answer around customer is a deep understanding of that customer and, and how they think and, and what their needs are and the problems and how you're going to solve those problems and why your solution is, is appropriate for that customer. I think a great answer is when you're able to ask a question that's a hypothetical and sort of something that doesn't show up in the research and you can see in the founder that they've internalized the customer enough such that with, if one assumption they're making is not true, they have answers B, C, D, E, F to, uh, to give the same value but with a different set of assumptions. Um, and so they're willing to acknowledge that their learning around that customer is going to continue. And that if some of the early learnings have led to assumptions that are incorrect, they have really good answers around how they would 
pivot their thinking to address a, a need as it arises. And so I think that that, um, that empathy um, is a continuum, and it sort of this creates this ongoing desire to continue to understand the customer rather than sort of, I did it, I know what they need, and now I'm going to build it. Do you, do you feel like communication with the customer is important? Because like, I might know like, okay, this is a customer, but like, to actually like being able to communicate with them or like know where they are, mm -hmm. like have like a direct, like, like how deep, like, like, do you feel it's necessary to actually um, like have that like one-to-one -one relationship with a bunch of uh, customers to like, I think early on, I think early on, yes. Like I think um, we, we talk a lot about founder-led sales for the first six to nine months of a company. Um, the ability to go to the front lines, directly see that customer engaging with your product. Um, if it's in a sales setting, saying yes or no to the, to the purchase decision. If it's in a consumer setting, seeing people using the product, understanding, answering customer service calls, all of those things. Um, I think allow you to have a real perspective and to make much much smarter decisions around iteration as you go. I think also, and this is something people underestimate, when you when the company does scale a little bit and you have to step away from doing that day to day, the fact that you've heard it directly from the customer, I think when you hear it coming up second and third hand from the people who are now at the front lines, you actually have much better context to make decisions there. And so um, I love founders who will have to, you know, for scale reasons, they step away, but then they go back to taking the customer service calls or doing a lot of the early product development, you know, again, paper prototyping, even once the company is, is up and running. But I think very early, yes, you have to have access to the customer. And I think the, I'm the customer, so therefore I know, is, is sort of a half-ass approach. Because if you're the customer, therefore you know, then you should be able to find lots of other people that are just like you, that have the same problem, and get the product in front of them and get them to give you the same answers that, that you would have. Um, and it doesn't take that much work uh, to go do that. And I'm not talking about hundreds of people, it's tens of people. But, but I think it is a really informative step uh, that, that every founder should, should take. Um, so could you talk about, um, it seems like there's a big trend of creating these lifestyle brands, like where they have really strong brands. Like how do you think about, like how are these brands created, like from your experience? So like the D to C, like stuff like Warby and Casper and yeah. Harry's, okay. Um, yeah, so my view of brand creation is it's mostly about saying no and being very, very specific about exactly who you're gonna serve. Um, and so the very best brand creators, I think they have, they have a very clear sense of, of who their highest expectation customer is and they understand exactly how to speak to that very narrow audience. And then there's a belief that if you can resonate with that customer, then there's all these adjacent customers and you sort of build out the business. Um, and, and so I think that when you're thinking about brand creation, the, the very best thing is to understand your customer, figure out the voice that they want to hear, the value proposition that's not currently being offered by you know, your competitors, and be able to provide that. Figure out the logistics that allow you to do that in a margin positive way from a unit economic basis, which is the downfall, I think, of a lot of those companies. But to be able to build a brand and a voice that people want to engage with and communicate with, and oftentimes in a category where the, um, they should have done this the other way, right? They have me looking at this one. Um, the, uh, but in a category where the product is, is effectively commodity, and um, what you're really differentiating on is the resonance and the emotional feeling that you create with your customer. Okay. 
But Casper is not that good a mattress. <laughs> <laughs> like it's in a box and it shows up, so it's super convenient. And you unpack it, and, and then if you don't like it after 100 days, because anyone would send back a mattress after 100 days, <laughs> then you can send it back. But they've done an amazing job creating a really cool brand, um, and now they're going to be the sleep company, I guess. But, but, the, but the general idea of how you resonate, I think with Warby, it was about style and basically saying not cheap glasses that look cool, it was like, you are a cool person and you shouldn't have to spend ungodly amounts on your glasses. And then, oh, by the way, you're, you're a person who's worldly and you care about you know, people all over the world and so we're gonna give glasses away. And they sort of crafted this, this braid of messages that really resonated very deeply with a very specific audience. Um, and then that also meant they could limit their skew count, right? So the very specific audience meant that the look had to be a certain thing, but not more. And so then they could build on that narrow thing and they started adding prescription and, and um, you know, and then, or they had sunglasses and then they went to, um, you know, broader categories. And so I think you can, when you want to build a brand, uh, like at AM1, we were very clear about exactly who we were talking to. And who we were talking to was not always the same person as who was buying the product. But we were very clear on who we talked to and eventually, the, the way we were talking and the person we were talking to was the aspirational, the person that our actual buyer wanted to become, right? And that was a very powerful sort of flip. Could you talk about uh, d uh, diversity depth? You've written mm -hmm. about it, and yeah. like especially for startups that are like hiring, like starting to hire, like mm -hmm. how do they think about those things? Yeah, so we see this all the time. Um, you know, when you're asking about diversity inside a company, um, you know, and, the, and again the recruiting and the, the um, like hires like, etc. Uh, and and so one of the things that we talk to our founders about is how committed are you to diversity. And, and then we try to hold them to those commitments. And there's always a trade-off, like because of the society we live in, because of the way the, the, the you know, education system and access and everything else works, if you decide that you wanna have an executive staff that's representative, it will take you much longer to hire an executive staff. It just will. Uh, if you wanna have an engineering team that's you know, gender parity, it's gonna take you a lot longer to hire an engineering team than if you just decide you're gonna hire you know, every, every person that sort of has the degree that you're looking for, right? And, and so I think um, when we talk about diversity debt, the thing that we've seen is for the founders that make a commitment, the, um, they tend to think of, um, when they wanna make that trade-off, when they feel like, oh, I'm missing my engineering count by three people this quarter, and I have three white dudes from Stanford, like right here, and I could just hire them, and I've hit my number, but I, and I'm trying to decide whether I should say no, the temptation is to take on that diversity debt and to hire those three people, uh, and then believe that over time, you know, oh, well, the next quarter we'll we'll hire six women. And there's no way you're going to do that. Like it just and it compounds much, much, much more steeply and and quickly than technical debt. And I think people use this framework of technical debt or organizational debt, and you say, oh yeah, we don't have HR, don't worry about it. Um, we'll fix that later, or, or like, yeah, if, if we get 10 million concurrent users, the whole thing will fall down, but if we have that problem, that's a good thing, and so we'll fix it later. And those are actually things that you probably can fix later. Um, and, you know, there's, there's the ability to say, okay, now we're really scaling, and so now we need to, like, rip and replace all of the infrastructure code, and we can hire people to do that, and they can spend six months, and they can build it, and we can flip over to the new infrastructure, and now we can scale to 100 million concurrence, and that's great. Uh, but with diversity, you can't actually do that. Like you, you can't necessarily hire faster. And then what starts to happen, which is really the, the hardest part, is 
if, if you want to have a diverse engineering team and you have an engineering team of three and you want to hire your first woman, she'll be 25% of the team. And she has 25% of the DNA of that team and the culture and everything else. And that's daunting a little bit, but it's probably okay, assuming that the other three people aren't douchebags. And then if you have 10, now she's 10%. And 20, 5%, and, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so then the very best people start saying, no, I don't, I don't want to join that team. One, because I don't want to do that work. Like that would be very hard to, to shift that culture and to be the representative in that, in that group that's now larger than three or four. Um, and then the other thing is, at some point, it does reflect your values. And when it starts to be very clear that this reflects your values, um, you know, the, the move fast and break things tends to fall down for, for the most talented first and then on down the chain because the most talented have lots of options and they have options to join diverse teams who are working on attacking problems in ways that resonate with them and, and their value set um, and where they have mentors in the executive staff that they can look to and they have, you know, uh, infrastructure around that makes them feel comfortable to, to be themselves and, you know, bring your full self to work and do their best work. Um, versus spending some percentage of their time fighting about culture or hires or you said this thing that was insulting or, or whatever it happens to be, or worse, right? Um, and so I think that diversity debt is something that um, is, if you, once you take it on, it's, it's sort of impossible to pay off. And so we, we push pretty hard for people not to take it on in the first place. Okay, so I have one question so you, um, in your bio, you say you're a sneakerhead. So, um, like, what does that mean? And then, how many sneakers? <laughs> um, so the, I can define it, and then I'll I'll object to your second question. <laughs> the, um, uh, so, so for me, I've always always been into sneakers. I've played basketball my whole life, and and basketball is a sort of look good, play good sport. Uh, so I've always been into sneakers. And, uh, and then coming out of college, I joined a, a footwear company. Well, at the time it was a t-shirt company, but we became a footwear company. And so I sort of got to go from a user to a dealer. And, and in that uh, shift, the addiction was kind of implanted. Um, and seeing how they're built and going to China and doing all these things was amazing for someone who was just passionate about the, the product itself. Um, and now, the reason I object to the question is not that I don't want to share how many sneakers I have, it's that um, I tend to, to buy a lot of sneakers, like a pair a week. Um, but I also tend to give away an equal number kind of once a quarter. I tend to take a big box to Goodwill and, and give them away because I, I wear them a couple times and then I'm done with them, but they're still fine. And, and so um, I tend to give them away. For a while, two of my partner's sons were size 12, and so I could give them to them. Oh, cool. um, so they, they like that, but then they, they grew beyond you know, that point. So. But that's, Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, so any questions? Go ahead. Yeah, do you mind speaking about valuations? I would say that a, a startup is as valuable as your options. And so we, we tend to look at the bottom is, the, the, the low end of the valuation is the amount that we think if you take more dilution than that, you'll no longer be motivated in later rounds. And so I think when people sell 30, 40, 50% of their company at seed, that's crazy. And you're gonna own 10% of it when after the B and you just won't be motivated. So, so we, don't, we don't like that. Um, and then on, on the high end, it really comes down for us to making our business model work. And so, you know, I think 
we try to get 15 to 18% ownership and for the right companies at the right stage, we're willing to write you know four to $5 million checks to achieve that. Um, but when we think about valuation, it really is more 100% art, not science. And it has to do with, in a vacuum, what we think the company's worth based on progress and context of other companies that we've talked to and, and what we believe the prospects of the company are and the risks that are built in and so forth. But that vacuum gets broken very quickly because all good founders have multiple term sheets or options and everyone prices things differently. And then once once you have two term sheets, now you have a market and then it becomes like, who's willing to, who's gonna say I give first? And you know, I think um, you know, we, we often see the, the prices get laddered up pretty quickly. Um, at the same time, uh, as a founder, I think you're choosing, uh, you, you, know, you have 100 points of equity and you're choosing to allocate them to acquire a product and a partner. And so I think the other way we look at it is that the, the price is really, we're on, we're on the sell side of the equation. And so the, the real question is, how much equity are you willing to give up to work with us? And, and we try to look at it that way and say, these are the ways we're gonna help you. Here's how we as an individual partner or any of my other partners resonate with the founder and they believe they can form a partnership. Um, and then what is that worth to you as a founder and, and how much do you think it helps you build uh, to achieve your vision and ultimately build the company that, that you aspire to build? And if you believe that we improve your odds of doing that by 5% or 10% or more, then maybe it's worth letting us invest for 18% ownership when you have another offer for the same amount of money for 12% ownership. Um, and we often see that in the market where we tend to not be the highest price uh, offer that founders have and we tend to win 93.3% of the companies where we issue a term sheet. You know, I think the, the hiring around uh, ethnic and gender diversity is, is kind of a social responsibility question at some level. But I've read and seen the state where you, what you're really looking for is diversity of thought and experience, right? So if you hire four white dudes from Harvard, that's significantly different than two white dudes and two white gals all from Harvard and Ivy League schools, right? So how do you sort of blend that? So I think um, I think the so so for me the, the social responsibility question is like I, I think of it as an economic question because of the diversity of thought and all the stuff that's shown that companies that are that are diverse by background in terms of their leadership teams and their and their staff generate better outcomes um, economically. So so for me it's an economic question, not a social responsibility question. They they happen to align, so it's nice. It's not a conflict, but. I think it's an economic decision, um, and I think the founders we work with think of it that way as well. It's an economic benefit, more than social responsibility. Uh, and then, in terms of sort of the, I think the thing that drives that economic benefit is the diversity of thought, which comes from diversity of background and experience. Um, and you know, the way I view it generally is, sadly, in America, the way you look basically defines that. And I think there are exceptions, and I think you should be maybe careful about the exceptions and you know you could end up with a team that looks diverse but they all went to harvard grew up rich and had privilege their whole life but even in that case the rich black kid gets stopped by the cops because he wears a hoodie and the rich white kid doesn't and i think that it brings you know you can use it as a very very good filter 99.9 percent .9 of the time yes i was uh, very 
very intrigued by your uh, reference to consumer research tools that don't actually cost that much money. So um, I don't know if this is below your pay grade, but um, can you talk about some consumer research approaches or tools that maybe some companies have used that didn't cost a lot but were very credible and impactful? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think um, you can, uh, at a very basic level, like Google's trends can show you like, oh look, more people are searching for X, and you can sort of see shifts in that way. I think you can you can look at, um, you know, if you just look at LinkedIn around companies in a space that you're going after, and are they adding a lot of people, are they growing quickly? You could look at public market comps and say, um, okay, this is how, like these companies seem to be getting traction, um, and therefore there's demand for this thing. Um, but very you difficult could also to do like primary direct research. Well, I don't know. So you can do surveys. Like Google surveys. surveys at scale, right? Sorry, I'm not arguing. No, no, no it's fine. Scale. Like Google, I think I think the the ability to send out, um, you can do you can buy Google AdWords very cheaply and see if people will click on just dead links, but with a certain message. So you can do that, and that's. I mean, it depends on how you define expensive, but like for less than a thousand dollars, I think you could touch. 100 to 10,000 people with an AdWord campaign to understand, like, is this intriguing, this value proposition, right? If I see that there are searches for this thing, can I come up with a thing that people will click um, based on some value proposition? So you can do that. I think that um, you can always, you know, figure out through your own network, like, who are your customers and can you talk to them? And then they probably have friends, and so it costs a lot in terms of time. It's not scalable, but I think you can get insight into. Um, like very high fidelity with low numbers, so fewer than 100 people, but where you could spend a half hour with each of them, you're going to probably learn more than you would if, even if you paid for a user research study at the you know at 10,000 people. Right. Um, and so I think there's there's depending on how you define expensive, um, but my general sense is there are free resources and then tools out there that for in the thousands of dollars you can learn a tremendous amount that's sort of credible, um, and then and then you can also do things where you're, you know, you have, maybe people want to see video, but just sort of, you're telling the anecdotal stories about the paper prototyping that you did, or the conversations you had, or the needs finding that you did with your potential buyer, um, to understand that process, and to see how, you know, that person is positioned and their budget within lots of different companies that you'd be targeting. So, when you take meetings with female founders, are you seeing a diverse set of industries, or what are the Yeah, so I think there's the there's the the stereotypical, you know, like we we invested in Birchbox, and so we saw a lot of consumer facing, direct to consumer, you know, women stuff. Um, healthcare has been fascinating. So um, I invested in a company called Modern Fertility, which is a female founder, and she's doing amazing work. And I think it'd be hard for a man to start that company. Um, I think uh, there's another company called Sitka, which is nothing to do with gender, but is doing some amazing things in healthcare around giving primary care physicians access, tele-access tele to specialists um, to evaluate um, uh, medical diagnostics, which is really interesting. Um, so we've seen some interesting stuff in healthcare. Um, I think we've also seen some stuff in computer vision and robotics. So there's a woman, uh, Anna, who founded a company called Instrumental, and she comes, she was a uh, hardware engineer at Apple, and she's working on using computer vision to assess um, you know, the stuff coming across the line in China. Um, so I think, I think we see a pretty broad range of companies. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think we've seen any fintech um, with women founders, at least recently, or I haven't. Um, but that might be the only category where I haven't seen a female founder in the past, you know, sort of year. But I, yeah, I, I think there's the 
the, the press attention sort of tends to be around consumer-facing branded, all this stuff. And nothing wrong with that, but that's where the press attention goes. But I think that um, when we look across the investments that we made, and also when I think about the meetings that I've had, I don't think, other than FinTech, and that's not a specialty of mine, so I'm not the one to ask, um, but other than, than FinTech, I haven't, haven't seen a sort of focus uh, or, a, or a, a, a set of missing industries. Married founders, uh, <laughs> two, two CEOs. Um, Wait, you're serious about the married founders? Yeah. yeah. Married uh, to each other. Two, yeah, married no. to each other. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> So you need a female perspective on yeah. <laughs> um, So, yeah, two white guys. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so uh, two CEOs, I think it, it reflects kind of the general maturity of the executive team. Um, I think that when, when people uh, are raising money because they can, not because they should, and so I think there's a lot of that right now. Like, there's a tremendous number of people that, that we're meeting with who are raising money because they can, and they, you know, we see people all the time who, you know, they're leaving Instagram and they're gonna raise $500,000 to test an idea and it's all friends and family. And then, you know, whoops, we're taking $3 million from, you know, a big Santa Road firm because we can. And I think what, what um, the red flag for us there is, uh, is in part kind of wishing that, that we got to look at it, um, but also feeling like if you're not, if you don't have the discipline to understand what your company needs and to say no to certain things and know it'll be there later, um, that's a challenge, and it sort of it shows that you're not fully assessing the the sort of unintended consequences of your decisions, and particularly around financing a business. Once you take three million dollars to go do something, you're going to go do that thing. Like that is what you're going to do, and you're going to either be right or wrong, and you're going to go do that thing. When you raise a small amount, you know, or, or nothing, you're going to go and pursue your north star, and you're going to figure out how to do that, and then you're going to figure out how to apply capital to give you leverage to then go do that faster. Um, and to win your market, which is very different, and it's like more more appropriate. So those are kind of the three, the three brother sister teams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Driven. Uh, I think we, every partner has been an entrepreneur uh, previously, and I think we all kind of believe if we could come up with what the imagined future should be, that we should go build it ourselves because it would be more fun and we make more money doing that. Um, the, and so we tend to be interested in spaces and then understand the entrepreneur's vision for how they will attack that market. I will say, as we meet with people over time, you start to build a perspective around a market. So the, um, you know, like the, the abstraction layers that people are adding to product creation, like low code, no code space is generally what it's called. Like working with the team at Notion definitely informed the decision to make the investment in the team at Clay, um, which definitely informed the investment decision for the team at Glide. And those three things all sort of fall into that broad category of low code, no code, allowing clumsier hands to do more nuanced and fine grained work. 
um, but they're all kind of different in how they actually attack that. And so I think uh, while investments and the time we spend looking at markets inform kind of narrow our scope of what we're looking for, I don't think we are smart enough to set out and find something that will be successful. Um, same reason we don't really do incubation projects and um, same reason that when a founder comes to us and they say like, I'm gonna work in this space, can I have some money? We typically say no, because we just would be in the way. We're not, not very helpful at that, at that stage. So I think um, alternative models are great. I think, I think uh, and the reason I say that is because we have a very specific thing that, that we, like venture capital is a very specific thing. Like my, my partner Josh talks about jet fuel. And it's like you don't buy jet fuel if you're driving a Jeep. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and I think we are definitely in the business of selling jet fuel. Uh, and if, if your company is not that, then you should not take venture capital. Like the, the problem with being out here, and, and even someone in New York, is that like raising money is a success. And this is just idiotic. Like, like capitalizing your business appropriately based on your aspirations, goals, and approach, that's success, right? And doing that over a long period of time, and therefore being very successful in the market, like that's a success. Yeah. Raising money from VCs, regardless of who they are, is not success, unless that is the most appropriate way to capitalize your business, um, for longevity, so so I think that the the revenue-based financing stuff, I think um, some of the stuff that like um, IndyVC, like Bryce and IndyVC is doing is really interesting. I think angels will always have a role because angel return profiles are very different. And so while for us, if you're not going to try to build a two billion dollar plus company, it's kind of hard for us to get excited. If as an angel I can invest fifty k, and in three or ten years you're going to give me back. 150 or 500, like that's amazing. Right? Um, and if, by the way, I get to participate in that journey, and I like partnering with you, and you know, I, I think um, there's there's tons of sort of small and growing businesses that are completely not appropriate for venture, but are great businesses and, and should be financed by these alternative methods. There's a very very small number of startups that should actually take venture capital and, and are ready for sort of that starting them to go off and to to sprint. The all or nothing. Yeah. Right? That's right. Okay, thank you everybody and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening to the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders podcast. To stay up to date on all the exclusive content for Wharton Founders and Funders, be sure to join the mailing list at hellowafa.org and connect with the community on LinkedIn. Until next time.